I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. If you were here last week, uh, you heard me give a um, correction to what I had put into the bulletin, Um, and I'll do it again this week. The text that we'll be looking at this morning is Exodus chapter 3. We'll just be going verses 13, um, maybe verse 14, we'll see. Uh, this, This chapter is so rich, as I continue to dig into it, I find I can't get very much further than, um, than I get this morning. So uh, we'll just be reading a few verses, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed your name to us. I ask that you'd help us to understand it rightly. To live in a reverence for you, for there is none like you, none before you, none after you. There is no God beside you. And so help us to worship you rightly and understand your will for us, even understand who you are and how that so profoundly affects our lives. Use this text to help us grow in the knowledge of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently uh, was told my, by my parents that my name was not what they had originally intended to call me. I don't know if, you've, if you know the story of your name and how you came about your name from your parents, but if you find out that it could have been something else, it throws you for a little bit of a trip. My, re- my parents just recently told me, and they probably told me this before, but it hadn't clicked, uh, that they originally were going to call me Jonathan Andrew. And then they found out that a number of other uh, children during that time were being named Jonathan. They're in, kind of in their church and around the circle. And so they, they couldn't do that, so they switched the name. So now I'm Andrew Jonathan. But if my name had been Jonathan, I feel like my whole life would be different. It's hard to think what that would be like. It's my middle name, but I don't really think of it as necessarily all that important. It's kind of mind-blowing to think what it would life have been like if my name was Jonathan. Now, Jonathan means God has given. And it's not necessarily that it's intrinsic to me that the name would have to coincide with what I am, but Andrew means strong and manly. So you can do with that what you want. 
Names obviously have a, a significance to us. You each have a name. That's no shocker to any of us, and it's attached to you. And to kind of take away your name would be, in a sense, to take away your identity. That's why it's so hard for me to think about what I would be like as a Jonathan, because it would just take away who I am. God takes names seriously. That's not to say that if you name your child Zach, and God wanted you to name him Nathan, that you've messed it up. That's not the kind of way that God takes names seriously. I don't know how much God cares about whether I'm Andrew or Jonathan. But it's to say that God uses names throughout the scriptures to make important points. And you can see this from the very beginning. Adam has that name because it means man. He is the very first man, or Eve, the mother of all living. Or God takes the name Abram and changes it to Abraham, multitude, father of a multitude. Or Sarai to Sarah, meaning princess. Or Moses, as we saw in chapter 2 of Exodus, named such because he was drawn out of water. Or you go to the New Testament and you have Simon, who is also designated Peter, by Jesus, because Peter means rock. In the Old Testament, there are 82 explicit name word plays. That is where a name of something or someone is a play on words. It has the name, has some additional meaning or association with the place or the person. Just as I've gone through with Adam and Eve and Abraham. Means that the sound of the name or the meaning of the name relates to something about the person or the place or the circumstances surrounding the name. That's 82 times you see that in the Old Testament, 52 times in the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible where we find Exodus happening as the second book of the Bible and of the Pentateuch. This passage that we have before us in Exodus 3 is kind of like those other passages and really not like those other passages because this name is not the name of a place or the name of a human being but the name of God and as we consider this portion of scripture we have to feel a bit like God is letting us into the holy of holies This is holy ground. All of Scripture, of course, is holy, but occasionally you get portions of Scripture that reveal something that is so profound that the whole rest of Scripture can be built upon that truth. Here we approach a scene where God gives us a glimpse of himself in the name that he reveals for himself. The way that this passage unfolds is that Moses is being commissioned by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He hasn't done that yet. He's now just encountering God for the first time in the wilderness of Midian. And Moses asks him a question. He's already asked him one question, but now he asks this second question in verse 13. If, the, if Moses goes to the people of Israel and says to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God answers in three ways. 
You see the way the Lord says it. Verse 14, I am who I am. And then I am. And then verse 15, the Lord. This is the name of God. And that's what we'll spend our time thinking about. The name of God. And if God allows, we'll spend this week thinking about it, and we'll spend next week thinking about it, because it is so important to our understanding of what he's revealed about himself. So let's break this down like this. We'll spend a few moments thinking about the importance of knowing the name of God, and then we'll take some time in just thinking about the actual name of God that he gives when he says, I am who I am. So why is it important to know the name of God? Give you a couple of answers to that. First, it is important to know his name because God gives us his name. This may be a little bit like a parent giving a child a letter and the child says, why do I need this? And the parent says, because I gave it to you. If God tells us something, it's important and therefore we are to listen. But there's something more worth observing about that right at the start as we think about the name of God. We have the practice of bestowing names on things and people, on our children and on our pets. Or you think of Adam when he was given the responsibility as the the creatures of the earth were paraded to him that he would name them. It was his responsibility to call them what he saw them to be, and that was their name. That task was given to Adam. But we are not given the task of naming God. We do not have that responsibility. If we were to do that, we would be designing God according to our own way of thinking, our own designs, what we think he ought to be like and to do. We are not given the privilege of naming God. There are many gods in this world that are like that, that are man-made, man-created, and we name it, and it functions how we want it to function, and we have it effectively under our thumbs because we have named it or designated it for what it is to be and do. Our naming is so kind of in us that we find a proclivity to just name things all the time. We create something and we name it, or we discover something and we name it. There's natural discoveries and scientific discoveries that try to name things according to some sort of classification. If you remember your high school biology class, you learned those Latin names and classifications and orders and genus and species. And all of that is some sort of classification system to designate what we see and observe and to call it what we see it to be. We name stars after those who discover them, or dinosaur bones after where they were found, or telescopes over prominent Astronomers like the Hubble Space Telescope, named after Edwin Hubble, who discovered there were millions of galaxies beyond our own. We name things all the time for discoveries we make, and it honors the one that discovers it, and we bestow a name on that thing. 
but not so with God. We do not name him. We don't open a book, names of gods, and pick the one that we like. We hear from him what his name is. Moses asks, what is his name? The Lord tells him. Moses does not name him. Knowing the name of the Lord is important because it is the Lord who reveals it to us. It's the Lord who names himself. It's also important because knowing the name of God shows us that we can know who God really is. One of the common arguments of atheism, as they're kind of discussing the problems of theism, is they might conjecture, okay, if I believe in God, which God am I to believe in? Is it to be Zeus, or is it to be fill-in-the-blank of the millions of gods, which God is it that I am to believe in? And that's a fair question, actually. Which one ought you to believe in? And the answer that we have to give is, well, the true one, the real one, not the fake ones. And of course, the question is, who is the real one? Well, he has a name, and he gives it to us. That's the one that we are to believe in and worship and live by. His name is right here. He gives it to us. It's this one. This is important for Moses, and let's step back a little bit and get some context of what's happening in this passage for a moment to dig in a little bit deeper here. Moses is being summoned by God into this ministry of delivering the Israelites out of Egypt. Israel is in slavery. They're burdened by their oppression. God has seen that and is now acting on their behalf. Moses is aware of their oppression, and he had tried some 40 years previous to lead them in some way by murdering an Egyptian and then intervening between two Hebrews who were fighting. But he ended up in exile, and he's been in the wilderness of Midian for about 40 more years. He's about 80 years old now and a shepherd. And as he's a shepherd, he sees the sight of a bush that's burning and isn't consumed. And he goes to see it. And when he goes to see it, the Lord begins to speak to him from the bush, out of the flame of fire. Moses is now on holy ground and has encountered the living God. God tells Moses that he has seen the affliction of his people, that he has come down to deliver them out of Egypt and into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then, to Moses' surprise, he's the one that's going to do the leading. God has chosen Moses, that he will lead him out. And Moses' first question to God is, who am I? Who am I? He says in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, God's answer to that is, but I will be with you. The emphasis is on 
the presence of the Lord. Well, this elicits another question from Moses as he's thinking about this going, and he starts off by asking the question with this condition, if I come to the people, or suppose I come to the people. Some translations put it as behold, but it's really this conditional uh, potentiality of him going. Suppose I go, suppose this actually happens, and I end up going to the Israelites in Egypt. That's kind of the, what, the thing that Moses is saying here. Supposing he should go, and he expects that if he goes, and he's going to be about this act of deliverance, the people are going to ask probably a fairly obvious question. What is the name of the God who sent you to deliver us? Who is this God that is behind you. If you recall, back when Moses tried the first time to intervene in some way, in chapter 2, verse 14, the response of the Hebrews to his action was, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? It's kind of a question of authority. Who was it that appointed Moses for this task? He seems to be expecting a similar question as he goes back. What is the name of the God who has sent Moses? Now, it kind of begs the question, do the Israelites not know God? Or maybe Moses, does he not know the name of God? And whether the Israelites don't know or Moses doesn't know is not very clear to us. We don't, we don't know if they didn't know. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they didn't know. Judges chapter 2, verse 10 says, And all that generation, this is after they are led out of the land and into Canaan, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. It's not impossible to imagine that over the course of hundreds of years, the memory of the Lord and of his name had grown faint to the point where a reminder was needed. Oh, it seems like Moses remembered or knew at least of his ancestry that he was a Hebrew, and if he knew his ancestry as a Hebrew, he would have probably known about Joseph and maybe Joseph's father Jacob, and Jacob's father Isaac, and Abraham, but the memory of God may have grown a bit dim at this point, not so out of the realm of knowledge that they had no idea that there was a God, but maybe just some need for recollection as to who this God is. And so he anticipates the name as he enters back into Egypt. What is his name? Maybe asked of him. What shall I say to them? The importance for Moses to have the name of the Lord in his pocket is to basically show that he has the right God sending him, the God who is able to fulfill the very task for which he's been sent. In the immediately following verses, God is going to tell Moses what he's going to do through him in Egypt for Israel. And then later in chapter 6, God is going to describe all the things that he's going to do for Israel. Turn there to Exodus 6, verse 6. 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. The Lord's not afraid of making known who he is and what he has done. And he is going to let the people of Israel know who it is. Who is the one who is doing this deliverance? And so as Moses asks, what is his name? It seems as though God is eager to give his name. So that he may be credited with all that is going to happen. And that he might also be the one who is proven to be the one who sent Moses. Knowing the name of God was so important to Moses. It becomes important to us because knowing the name of God provides a peg on which to hold the glory for the actions that he accomplishes. Having a name, anyone's name, acts a bit like a a peg on a wall where it holds the accomplishments, and the attributes of that person. There's this concept that if you were to remove your name from yourself, you would kind of remove your identity, or at least that peg that held all of those attributes of who you are. There's a story of a man who... Um, when he turned 60 years old, he decided that he no longer wanted to be called Mike, he wanted to be called Michael. Because he found out that Michael was a, more of a biblical name, it had L at the end, which stood for God. And so he wanted his friends and family to call him Michael, but after two years, he gave it up. It just couldn't be done. Because who he was was Mike. All of his attributes and characteristics were hung on that peg and it couldn't be undone at that point. One theologian says regarding God's name, it was God's desire that Israel would know, cherish, and use his name. This name became the peg on which they could hang all his visible actions and mighty proclamations. A name isn't everything. It doesn't tell you everything that you need to know about a person. But you can't know everything about a person from a name. It might describe some things about them. may even describe the main thing about them, but only in a generic sense. Or like Abraham, who had his name that represented what he was going to be. He was going to be a father of a multitude that meant something. Or Peter, meaning rock. That meant something about who they were. But it's more than just what it meant intrinsically. It was also this element or this peg that was going to hold their actions and character traits and accomplishments. Without further actions and descriptions, a name is relatively vague and generic in association to the person who possesses it. 
But a name is important because it makes plain to whom we refer. This is one of the troubles with common names. If this were a typical Sunday and people were here, if I said, Rick is amazing, there'd be several Ricks right now would be thinking I was talking about them. But when you know which Rick I'm referring to, it will make a lot more sense. Because you have associations with that name. I'm not going to tell you which Rick I'm thinking of. A name garners the associations that we have with that person. And as for the name of God, the name that he gives gives himself has intrinsic meaning, but it's also just a name. It's a peg on which we hold all of the attributes and accomplishments that apply to him. We need that name to know who the one is who has done all of these things so we continue referring to him as the one who has done those things. So we don't misapply it to some other God or some other person. So we know that it is the Lord who has done all that he has done. And everything gets heaped up on him. And so for all time, for all people, we can credit him with the accomplishments that he has done. Again, in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8, as he describes all that he's going to do, the Lord bounds that paragraph with, I am the Lord, and then he says all that he is going to do, and then he says, I am the Lord. He wants his name associated with his accomplishments. And so knowing his name is important because it provides a peg on which to hold the glory of, of God for the actions that he does. Knowing his name is also important because it serves as an identifier for what he is like. His name describes something of who he is. It's more than just a peg. It also describes something of who he is. If I were to walk into a room of people I didn't know and I said, I'm Andy, They would look at me and say, so what? It doesn't matter. But when Moses enters Egypt, he is to say in Exodus 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The Egyptians are going to know the Lord when he does these things, stretch out his hand, and bring out the people. But his very name is going to show that he is the kind of God who can do those things. The very name he possesses indicates that he is the kind of God who can do the things that he's going to do. So even as you hear the name of the Lord, you should be encouraged that whatever he says he can do, if he holds fast to his name, he can do it because that's what his name indicates about him. When people meet me and they find out my name is Andy, they don't immediately know that I am manly and courageous. (laughs) But when you meet the Lord, the I am who I am, that's a name for no other lips. 
And it speaks of the absolute character that he possesses. And so the name of God is important because he's the one who reveals himself to us. Because then we know which God is the true God. Because we have a peg on which to hang all of the attributes and characteristics and actions that he possesses and accomplishes. Because through it, we know something of what he is like. That's why it's important to know the name of the Lord. Spend a few moments thinking about the name of the Lord now. Moses has asked, what is his name? And notice in verse 14, God is not reluctant this time to give it. He answers, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He goes on to shorten it, I am. And then he goes on to shorten it even further, the Lord. Or if you were looking in the Hebrew, it would be similar to our consonants, Y-H-W-H. As I'm studying this book of Exodus, I am discovering how important this book and particularly this section is to the whole rest of the Bible. And that's why it's important that we spend some time digging in here and we'll only be able to really scratch the surface this time and next time. But when God gives his name, he lays a foundation that is going to be providing support to the rest of what happens in the Bible. He says... In answer to the name, what is his name? He says, I am who I am. Three words in the Hebrew. In English, we translate it as I am who I am. In Hebrew, it's the verb to be, followed by a relative particle, followed by the same verb to be. Notice, that's not a normal way to answer someone when you're asked, what is your name? You don't give a verb followed by a relative particle followed by a verb. But this is the way God answers. And it shows that there's something unique about this God and his name. Notice also that God is not refrained from answering him. In several instances in Scripture, in Genesis 32 and Judges 13, he's asked for his name and he doesn't give it. But here he gives it because it is going to be so attached to everything that he's going to do that his name needs to be known. Also, you need to notice that if your Bible has a footnote, it's worth looking down at it because it will give you some alternative translations to it. In mine, it says... I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. One commentator lists out several of the other translations for how you could take these three Hebrew words. It could be, I am who I am. I am who I was. I am who I shall be. I was who I am. I was who I was. I was who I shall be. I shall be who I am. 
I shall be who I was. I shall be who I shall be. And there are more options. It's befuddling to read about this because people continue to debate what did God actually mean? We know what he said. We know the words. But what did he actually mean? How do we make sense of this? There's such a variety of ways to take this. How do we make sense of it? There's a couple of helps for us. One is the setting of it. The next is the use of similar words in the context and then similar phrasing in the rest of Exodus. First, the setting is this burning bush. Remember that God is speaking after manifesting himself as a flame of fire at a bush and not consuming that fire. Wouldn't it be likely if something of the manner in which he reveals himself here coincides with the name that he gives to himself? A flame that doesn't consume the bush that it is burning means that this has no need for fuel but is self-existent, self-sustaining, has no need for outside help. He is sufficient in and of himself. This is significant for what Moses is facing. Moses, a man, as you read through this story, you hear him constantly revealing Moses' own feeling of his insufficiency for the task that he's been given that he cannot do this. And at the end, he doesn't want to do it. And Israel, a stubborn and oppressed people who need to be delivered from a mighty nation, wouldn't it be that the name God reveals of himself would show that he is sufficient in himself? He is more than capable and has no need of help from anyone else or providing the deliverance that he promises. That would be a word of comfort to Moses. So the setting is significant to understanding what God is communicating here. The use of the same verb is significant. It's been used in verse 12 when God responds to the question of Moses, who am I? God says, but I will be with you. It's the same verb, I will be. It's also used in chapter 4, verse 12. I will be with your mouth. Or verse 15, I will be with your mouth. Or you could translate it, I am with you. I am with your mouth. I am with your mouth. It indicates the presence of God, the presence of this self-sufficient God. The very name that God gives of himself is to be a reminder of his presence. When God answers what is his name with I am who I am, it's a reminder that he is self-sufficient and that he is present. There's also similar phrasing in Exodus chapter 33, 18 to 19. It's a very important passage in Exodus. Moses has asked the Lord, please show me your glory And he said, that's the Lord, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. A phrase is very similar. God is saying in that moment that it is his prerogative upon whom he will show mercy. No one outside of him will define for God who he is to show mercy toward. God will be what he will be. He is who he is. And no one will tell him what he is to be. No one is going to declare to him what he ought to do. And so when God says, I am who I am, he is declaring to all the world that reads that name that no one outside of him will change him for what he actually is. He will always be and always is who he is. Revelation picks up on this when God declares that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. There is no change in our God because there's no need for change. He cannot improve upon himself. His perfections are perfect. He cannot be improved upon. And so no one can make him be other than what he is. So as we hear this name, I am who I am, I think we can be content with that traditional translation. It fits the context. It fits the intent of what is happening with Moses. It fits the language. As we pause for a moment and think about this God who has declared himself to be the I am who I am, we think of what we know of God, of the true God. We know him to be the almighty creator, the thrice holy God, the sovereign ruler of the world, the merciful king who rescues sinners. He's the just judge who punishes the unrepentant. He's the king of angels. He is the one who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. He is the infinitely wise God. He is the one who takes counsel from no one and receives no gifts that he might be repaid. He is the God who appoints the times and the seasons of kings and nations and peoples. He's the one who does not dwell in houses made by hands. He's the one who is not served as though he needed anything. He's the one who feeds the birds and knows when the sparrow falls to the ground. He's the one who clothes the fields with the beautiful flowers. He's the one who imagined summer, fall, and winter. And he's the one who commands justice and righteousness. What name might we ascribe to this God? What name could we think up that might entail all that he is? What name could we give to him that could encompass all that God is and does? What name could we think of in all of our brilliance, in all of our ponderings for thousands of years? We could not come up with a name more brilliant than the name God gives himself. I am who I am. Three words in the Hebrew, five words in the English, and infinitely profound and completely appropriate for what we know of our God. This is the name that God has given himself. No wonder theologians for 3,000 years have been trying to figure out what this name means. You're trying to wrap your mind around the infinite God. It's a name so deep we cannot get to the bottom of it. And yet it is entirely appropriate 
for the God of the Bible. That's his name. That's the name he has given himself. And amazingly, and I wish I had time to get into this, it's the name that Jesus takes upon his own lips. We have a wonderful God and a powerful Savior. We worship him. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed your name to us. You are the I am who I am. We could not come up with a name more appropriate for what we know of you. And we worship you. We worship you, Lord Jesus, the one who took that name and fulfilled it. And we thank you that you, Lord God, in all of your holiness, Perfections look on us, the weak and frail people. And you are there for us. You are present for us. All that you are is there for us. We praise you. Help us, Father, to have an appropriate reverence for you, to trust you, to glorify you. We thank you for your goodness to us, your kindness in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.